Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The year is 1933. America is in the grips of one of the worst years in the Great Depression. A Japanese scientist demonstrated one of the most significant advancements in the development of weaponry, unveiling a machine gun that could fire 1,000 shots per minute. And Albert Einstein renounced his German citizenship owing to the rise of the Nazi party. On the 15th of April of that same year, the Inverness Courier tells us Aldi Mackay, a local businessman, and his wife, who remained nameless in the article, though they do point out that she had a university education, were motoring along the north shore of the Great Loch Ness. As Mr and Mrs Mackay passed close to Abriacan Pier, they noticed a significant disturbance in the water. The article, which reported their encounter, recorded it as a tremendous upheaval of water. It was Mrs. Mackay who saw it first, three quarters of a mile from the shore. She screamed then, horror etched on her face. In concern, Mr. Mackay pulled over, trying to ascertain the cause of his wife's distress. She did not speak, however, only pointed out across the lock. He followed the direction of her shaking finger and then, as if emerging into their very reality from the darkest depths of a nightmare, he saw he was sure the monster. Welcome to After Dark, Myths, Misdeeds and the Paranormal. I'm Dr. Maddie Pelling. And I'm Dr. Anthony Delaney. And today we're talking about the origins of the Loch Ness Monster. We are, and I had to have my fingers broken in order to enter into this dialogue slightly. I mean, I'm joking, but in a few weeks back, we had a planning meeting with our lovely producers, Charlotte and Freddie, and they suggested possibly looking at an episode on either the Loch Ness Monster or Bigfoot. And I was like, not Bigfoot. I'm not doing an episode on a big hairy teddy. It's just not happening. But I have to admit, even with Loch Ness, I wasn't so keen. I'd always kind of found the monster side of things to be more difficult to pin down. Usually when we look at topics on this podcast or for, you know, particular murder cases in the past and after dark, we examine the events or the supposed events in some cases in the context of their time, which is key. But monsters defy that type of scrutiny. They Mm. 
persist across thousands of years, iterations and stories. And they become, I, I said this to Maddie before, they, they become almost ahistorical in this way. So I was reluctant, but I'm actually really glad that I was persuaded because what you find when you look at the different contexts of some of these sightings is really valuable and telling us what's happening in in Britain and in the world at this time too. It is really interesting. And for me, I see or I I saw, and I think we're going to, today's episode might sort of change our perception a little bit, but I always thought of the Loch Ness Monster as a sort of conspiracy theory. As you say, ahistorical, not necessarily associated with a particular time period or a particular person even. Um, And I've been reading a lot about conspiracy theories recently for a new book project. And one thing that's becoming clear to me is that they have their own social, political implications. And I suspect the Loch Ness Monster will not be different in that regard. You and I are both big fans of the Highlands and Loch Ness and their surrounding areas. For those listeners who potentially haven't been, can you give us an idea of what it looks like, what it feels like up when you're in and around Loch Ness? Sure. So yeah, for anyone who has been to the Highlands, it's the most remarkable landscape. And I've been there a couple of times. And for me, it doesn't really feel like anywhere else in Britain. It's quite unique. And I think that's probably part of the appeal of the story of the Loch Ness Monster and of Loch Ness more generally. You know, it's the, I think it's the biggest of the locks in the Highlands. It has more water in it than all of the English and Welsh lakes put together, which when you stop and think about that, I know it's I'd never pretty really mind blowing. I'd never really understood it like that, but it's it's actually really important, even geographically, let alone with all of this, you know, story and folklore that's built up around it. Yeah, and with the Loch Ness monster in particular, I think this issue of a lack of extended archive, and we, we will talk about some of the archival material that is associated with this story, but it's difficult to get to grips with it because of the scale of the landscape and the invisibility of the monster within that. It feels a little bit abstract. The evidence that we do have is often sort of blurry mid 20th century photographs and finding this beast historically in this very large, very intimidating, completely vast landscape is something of a sort of intellectual challenge. I think it feels almost immaterial or difficult to sort of excavate from the reality of the place. For anyone who hasn't been, the lock is surrounded by these huge mountainous hills and it's incredibly long and thin. And it it just, there's a sense when you're there, I think, of possibility. You think about how deep that water is and it's no surprise that people do imagine things there. It's very evocative, this idea of this almost black water that is vast and deep. And then these trees that are surrounding the lake that are then framed by the hills in the background. And it actually reminds you that this is an ancient landscape. And as a result, I was surprised to find that the story of a monster in the area is actually quite ancient too. So the first time that there is a report of a monster in and around this area is not actually in Loch Ness itself. It's in the River Ness, which obviously is close by and adjoins. But it was in 565 and it was St. Columba. So this is linked to religious ideas and religious growth and the growth of Christianity in Scotland. But it was a monster and it was in that very close proximity to Loch Ness nonetheless. Now, this particular monster was known in the area and it had attacked swimmers and they were apparently out 
trying to spread the word as they did, as the early Christians did. And this one particular swimmer, uh, don't ask me why he was in the river, but he was under the instructions of St. Columba. And a monster emerged and tried to as a monster will do, eat the swimmer. And it was Columba, St. Columba, to give him his full title. He, he entered the river and made the sign of the cross and dared the monster to go no further and the monster fled. See, to me, Anthony, that story absolutely speaks to this idea of the wilderness beyond the civilized space that human beings occupy. You know, this is a land that St. Columba and others are trying to Christianize. They're trying to colonize it with their religious beliefs. And the likelihood that this event actually happened is incredibly 100%. slim, right? Oh, yes, sure. That's <laughs> oh, okay. what I was going to okay. say. Okay, you're, you're, you're really investing in <laughs> yeah, this, yeah. right? Okay. I believe now. <laughs> so, you know, for me at least, um, yes, it's a story about the triumph of early Christianity over Absolutely. The, the untamed landscape and the peoples of the highlands. Yeah, it's it's metaphorically saying, forget about your folklore, forget about the mythology, forget about the stories that have populated this landscape. We're here now and we've got these crosses and we're going to make a difference. Yeah. And, you know, that's so interesting to me that it's Columba making the sign of the cross that banishes mm, this monster. Yeah, and it's yeah. a sort of, you know, if the cross is the powerful emblem, the powerful symbol of Christianity, then the monster in that story is a symbol of this folkloric, ancient, pagan world. But this isn't the only historic sighting that we have of the monster, is it? So when's the next one? Well, actually, there's quite a big gap. The next one doesn't appear until the late 19th century, 1871, I believe. And it was seen by a Mr. Mackenzie. We don't have much details about this particular sighting. It wasn't taken particularly seriously at the time. But Mr. Mackenzie apparently saw something wriggling and churning up the water. Now, I mean, that could be... A multitude of things, I guess. There's not. I guess it was noteworthy enough for people to record it, but it didn't cause a, a, a flurry, which is actually surprising in the Victorian era. Actually, I'm surprised more people didn't flock. It's also a bit random if you think about it, because Columbus sighting is doing a job. It's fulfilling a function. It's talking about that Christianization that's spreading across Europe and particularly across Scotland in this instance. The later sightings, which we'll talk about in just a moment, also fulfill a function, I think. Mackenzie's in 1871, it's hard for me to decipher exactly what the function of that sighting is. Potentially something got to do with tourism, because, you know, we know people are traveling at this time. They are spending time by locks. They are, uh, you know, heading to the Lake District, heading to the Highlands. This is a tourist destination, as it was in the 18th century. I suppose we can look at it then as part of that romanticization of Scotland that happens. I'm thinking about Queen Victoria bringing back tartan and everything that kind of goes with that and this culture of, of the Scottish Highlands that's sort of reborn in British and specifically in English culture. And yes, tourism being a part of that. And I wonder if what Mackenzie's doing actually is piquing people's interest, drawing them into the landscape and saying, hey, look, there are things to be discovered here that are not yet properly understood. It's a way of bringing a bit of ambiguity or magic to a place that people are visiting with more regularity. I think that's definitely a possibility. I think the other possibility is we have retrospectively put Mackenzie's account into a line of sightings that it doesn't actually fit into. All he says, or all the, the words that we have available to us, is that he saw something wriggling and churning up the water. I mean, if somebody said that to me, I wouldn't be like, well, you know what that is? That's a prehistoric monster that's lasted the ages and it's now living in Loch Ness. It's like, well, okay, you saw... It's a block drain. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or you saw like a collection of eels or something. But mm -hmm. nonetheless, it has now being conscripted into 
this larger story of sightings. But things change because in 1933, which is significant in its own right, and we'll come to that, in 1933, things really, really ramp up. And so as we said in that uh, opening uh, part of the account by the courier, the Mackays had seen this monster in similar-ish language, rolling and plunging in Loch Ness. So, you know, if we think about what Mackenzie apparently saw, wriggling and churning, now the Mackays are seeing something rolling and plunging. So it's this disturbance on the water. And when we think about what that might actually look like in the water, it's helpfully ambiguous, isn't Mm, it? What are you actually seeing there moving in the water? I mean, if you look out across any body of water, it's really difficult when the light's hitting it and there's movement to make out anything in the water. You know, if you were standing on the edge of like Windermere or something, it's hard to see a duck (laughs) that's a few metres away. So this doesn't necessarily ring true. This seems maybe like wishful thinking. But go on, tell me a little bit more about Mackay's claim. Well, and that's interesting because Mackenzie's claim, just to go back to 1871 briefly, Mackenzie's claim kind of stops there more or less. But the Mackay's then elaborate slightly. And they say that this monster had the body, which they're now claiming was a monster, had the body of a whale. And as it turned in the water, the water was cascading and churning like a a shimmering or a simmering cauldron. So, you know, we're adding this drama to it. But I think the key element there is the body of the whale. So we have more descriptions of the water, but the body of the whale is new. And that is not something that Mackenzie saw in 1871, but it is something that the Mackays are describing in 1933. And I think this is something that is presumably unique to Loch Ness in that it's such a huge, vast body of water. And there's this idea that it was potentially joined to bigger oceans in prehistoric times. And therefore, mm. that some of the huge sea monsters that people imagine you know, from the prehistoric world may have survived in some way and endured in, in the lake today, right? So they're kind of tapping into that idea. Yeah, I wonder if they were aware of that idea, but certainly that has grown up around the mythology now. And of course, you know, the late, we're talking here early 20th century, but thinking about Mackenzie's vision in the the late 19th century, of course, is tied as well into the age of fossil hunting. We've got Mary Anning on the South Coast, you know, the Jurassic coastline, where people are literally finding the remains, the fossilized remains of real monsters, essentially, uh, real things that lived in the sea. And they're being put on display in London. People are flocking to see these incredible creatures. And I wonder as well if by 1933, there's still that interest in fossil hunting and in potentially one day finding a living specimen. I think certainly the fossils hold some uh, interest and intrigue. And particularly in 1933, because we know this even in our own lifetimes, experts, scientists will come out and say, actually, we got the look of that monster wrong. We've now managed with modern technology to put a far more accurate picture together of what it might have looked like. But think about the situation in 1933, where they're putting flesh and bones on these skeletons and on these fossils. And actually, what they're coming up with is in some cases not particularly as accurate as we have an image for it now, which means there's a gap between the fossil and the former reality and human imagination is maybe stepping in to fill that gap, particularly in this case. And that could be potentially lucrative as well. And that's something we need to bear in mind, I think, with these 20th century uh, sightings in particular. So we have the Mackays with the water cascading off this huge whale-like form that's moving through the lake. But this isn't the only sighting in 1933. It's quite a year for Loch Ness, isn't it? It's a busy, busy time. Let's get on to uh, the 31st of July. 
On the 31st of July, one Mr. G. Spicer of 10 Temple Gardens, Golders Green, NW11, perhaps having been aware of the coverage of the Mackay sightings three months earlier, wrote to the Inverness Courier with his own startling tale. Dear Sir, he began, I have just returned from a motoring holiday in Scotland and am writing to inform you that on Saturday afternoon, the 22nd of July last, I saw the nearest approach to a dragon or prehistoric animal that I have ever seen in my life. It crossed my road about 50 yards ahead and appeared to be carrying a small lamb or animal of some kind. It seemed to have a long neck, which moved up and down, and the body was fairly big with a high back. When we got to the spot, it had probably disappeared into the lock, length from 6 feet to 8 feet and very ugly. I am wondering if you can give me any information about it, and I'm enclosing a stamped addressed envelope, anticipating your kind reply. Whatever it is, and it may be a land and water animal, I think it should be destroyed. As I am not sure whether I had been quite close to it, I should have cared to have tackled it. It is difficult to give a better description as it moves so swiftly and the whole thing was so sudden. There is no doubt that it exists. Yours, etc. G. Spicer. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. (laughs) 
So we've now escalated from a whale to a dragon carrying its prey down into the log. How was this sighting received at the time, Anthony? I mean, it seems it's certainly a more thorough sighting. There's an account of you know the the anatomy of this creature, and it's crossing a road, so it's leaving the lock and walking around the highlands. Is G Spicer is he taken seriously in the newspaper? He is not really. I mean, I think it's really important for us to remember that although some of these claims might be authentic in that they believe they have seen them. We are talking about 1933, and there was a healthy dose of scepticism around even then. This is not something that people were opening the Inverness Courier and going, well, this solves it, guys. We now have to accept that this is true. You know, like people were tuned in. They they were very sceptical about this at the time. And they also become more and more sceptical, I think, when the likes of Mr. Spicer starts to do the newspaper rounds and gives quite a few interviews because there's an element of fame that goes along with this sighting, you know? It strikes me as well that the newspapers themselves are playing an absolute key role in disseminating these stories, these sightings. You can sell your story to the papers. You know you're going to get attention. You know it might be lucrative. Does this encourage more people to come forward? It does, because I think we'll talk about that in just a second. What also happens is you see that Spicer ends up in the Times. So, so that's a reputable newspaper. He's also on the front cover of uh, the Daily Express, I think it is, um, with the headline Loch Ness Horror Seen on Land. So this is also kind of a new element to the myth that the Loch Ness Monster can potentially come onto land. And actually, that's more frightening, right? Because it can follow you, it can come after you. It's this amphibious, prehistoric thing. And there's a, a picture of Mr. Spicer on the front page of the newspaper. So, you know, this is calling attention. People are now becoming more and more aware of these sightings and the people who are claiming the sightings. I wonder as well, if we think about the context of 1933, and there's obviously a feeling of unease growing across Europe, there's the rapid rise of nationalism and fascism that's going on. There's something about Spicer's account, the fact that this is now more of a threatening monster. This isn't something that's just lurking in the shadows of this one very deep lake in in the highlands, but it's coming onto the land. And he actually calls for it to be killed. He calls it very ugly and he thinks it should be, you know, executed or, or shot. You know, it's not something that's just lurking in the shadows of this very deep, isolated lock in, in the highlands, but it's actually coming onto the land. And part of me sees that as maybe part of the, the culture of hunting in Scotland hunting it can become a sport. But also there's something deeply unsettling and uncanny about the fact that it now is being apparently reported as coming onto the land. And I wonder if that taps into the political, the social moment happening in Britain. There's something about the 30s that it feels like impending doom is coming. And there's nothing quite like the feeling of impending doom as a sort of harbinger of that crawling, slithering out of the water in Scotland and, you know, potentially coming, making its way down to England. Yes, I absolutely agree. I think there is something about threat and however conscious that link might have been. It was what was going through my mind as I was reading all of this. It's impossible to divorce what's happening across Europe, in Germany in particular, from these ideas of threat, monstrous incursions and and frightening nightmare type scenarios. It's also interesting, I mean, just on a very 
superficial level, the things that Mr. Spicer did and didn't see. So for instance, he wasn't quite sure of some details, but he knew there was a lamb on its back. And this kind of idea of lamb sacrifice and the innocent and, you know. And it's the same religious imagery that is associated with St. Columba as well. And it's fascinating to me that once again, the Loch Ness Monster is being portrayed as sort of the enemy of morality, the enemy of civilized society, of Christianity. It's many centuries after this initial story is born and is tied into Christianity that once again, we're seeing that imagery come up. And what tends to happen now, if we are in Scotland, if we are in the uh, media industry at the time, is we have, okay, there's some anecdotal things about some monsters that might be in Loch Ness. Then we start to hear some sightings that are covered in the media. So we have the Mackays and Mr. Spicer, and we're linking that to some maybe historical anecdotal things that have gone on in the past. But I think what really starts to push this forward is photographic evidence, shall we use that word quite loosely. But that also appears for the first time in 1933. And I have provided, because I'm so generous, I've provided us with a picture taken by a man called Hugh Gray, which was taken, as I say, in 1933 on the 12th of November, to be precise. I know listeners will have a specific image in their head. It is not that image of the head poking up out of the water. That's a different photo. It's referred to as the the surgeon's photo. This is a far less specific image. I had never seen it before. Um, Maddie, I am going to give you the glorious task of trying to describe (laughs) this blurry, grainy, black and white image that I see in front of me. I mean, where to start? Um, Okay, it is a close-up of a body of water. It's black and white. It is, as Anthony says, it's very blurry. It's very grainy. In the centre of the image, there is something upsetting the water. It looks like there's something in the water. The water is moving in a strange way. To me, it almost looks like someone's thrown a heavy object into the water and the water is sort of splashing up around it. Would you ever look at this and go, oh my God, it's a monster? It looks to me like a small wave created by throwing an object into the water. Oh my God, yeah, it does a bit. I hadn't seen that. Yeah, I don't think (laughs) that people would have taken this particularly seriously. I mean, it doesn't even give a sense of the anatomy of the Loch Ness Monster, no. potentially. I mean, I guess on the left-hand side, there's there's maybe the hint of some kind of fin. I, I don't buy it. But what I do think is interesting is, as you say, this the bringing in of photography as evidence. Yeah. And therefore, the Loch Ness Monster, you know, we can sort of tie it in to the history of photography. People, and, and not just the history of photography, but the history of people taking their own private personal photographs that are then used in the news. And of course, for us today, it's incredibly easy if we attend any kind of event or see anything that's newsworthy, we just whip our phones out of our pocket and start recording. Mm. And we can maybe sell or give that to a news distributor to be used on the TV, to be used on social media. But when we think of 1933, it's fairly unusual that people are taking their own photographs that end up in the papers. And I think the Loch Ness Monster is really leading the way in terms of that kind of journalism that's being done by ordinary people. I think that's really 
astute actually I hadn't looked at it like that it is very groundbreaking in that sense and and again this is why I'm glad we're talking about this topic because there is something to be mined out of this despite my earlier skepticism I mean by the way I still don't believe in the Loch Ness Monster but something to be mined historically from this um, and this continues into the following year in 1934 it's so concentrated really when you think about it these events that are happening around the 1930s it, it almost becomes a sort of hysteria doesn't it that people once the initial sighting by the Mackays has happened, people are flocking to Loch Ness to try and get a glimpse of it because it's going to bring them fame. Mm. It's going to get the photographs they're taking in the papers. And it's the opportunity to identify the truth, the so-called truth behind an ancient mystery. And people can't resist that. Then in, in 1934, we have Arthur Grant, who sees a monster. And, and I think listeners might uh, identify some of the features that he describes. He sees a monster with a long neck, small head and a monstrous body, but not in the lake. It's crossing the road in front of him around the lake on the 5th of January at 1am in the morning. So again, it's dark. Um, there is this, but it's just interesting to hear some of those identifiable features coming forward now in this description. There was also a veterinary student who described it as a cross, who saw, apparently saw the Loch Ness Monster and described it as a cross between a seal and a plesiosaur, which I don't even really know what a plesiosaur is, but I'm going to Google it. And again, to have this kind of veterinary student stamp of approval is quite interesting for people, I'm guessing, at the time. It's fascinating, this, the, the way that people build up their evidence and how they make themselves seem viable to seem reliable the fact that they describe the anatomy in detail we have interestingly here another sighting of the monster crossing the road and again it's this strange juxtaposition of the ancientness of the monster itself and the modernity of of the road the modernity of the photographs this very much feels like something that's stepping out of a much earlier time and colliding with the modern world and causing all these kind of cultural dissonances that people are finding this incredibly compelling but also incredibly disconcerting that this monster is revealing itself now at this moment in the 30s um and of course yeah of course the the veterinary student i mean I, i'd love to know their motivation why they felt the need to report a sighting whether they really believed that they'd seen something uh, or, or whether they were very much jumping on this bandwagon hoping to make uh, you know a little bit of money selling mm. their story to the newspaper but it absolutely does lend the story at least in the media's eyes some level of legitimacy i think and don't forget the crack element, as in like, of course, a veterinary student is going to be up around Loch Ness and be like, here, lads, wouldn't it be great crack if I said that there was this thing that I saw? How hilarious would that be? And then they talk about it for the next 20 years. And here we are talking about it on a podcast in 2023. But it then it gets to a point. There's so many of these sightings that it gets to a point that somebody goes, right, lads, we need to actually measure this and we need to try and record something that's going on. We need to get a handle on some of these sightings that uh, are happening up in the Highlands. So this brings us to the next part of the story. Sir Edward Mortimer Mountain, first baronet, had made his name and fortune as the founder of the Eagle Star Insurance Company. A marine insurance specialist, he had first come to prominence by refusing to insure the Titanic's maiden voyage. However, 
By 1934, he was willing to take a risk on his reputation and launched the first ever substantial investigation into the Loch Ness Monster. Mountain employed 20 men to sit beside Loch Ness with box cameras. The men were given binoculars and assumed strategic positions across the loch from 9am to 6pm each day for five weeks, beginning on the 13th of July 1934. Mountain paid them each £2 per week, only equal to an average wage for one day's labour for a skilled tradesman. As an extra incentive, however, an additional £10.50 was offered for a successful picture. Over 21 pictures were obtained. One typical example is a blurred, shadowy image of a lonesome loch. Not far from the shore, there is a regular line of black marks that could be the backbone of an enormous monster. Or, if you can imagine it, a tiny, grainy photograph of an irregular series of ripples across a lake. I think there are two things to say here. First is that Mountain, to me, represents one of those incredibly wealthy men in the 19th, 20th century who is able to push all of his money into monster hunting. <laughs> I love Just it. Just like me. That's exactly what I do with all my money. It's what you do on the weekends. Absolutely. Uh -huh. um, the second thing is, do you think that Mountain and the men that he hires, are they really expecting to take a photograph of a real animal or are they planning to fake it? Um, okay, that, I think it's a really good question. I don't think they're planning to fake it because the quality of the, the 21 pictures that were obtained are absolutely abysmal. It's just blurriness. It's just water. It's just disturbances on the lake. I also think it's really interesting that they chose between 9am and 6pm to be there when actually the other sightings are taking place at night. So that doesn't really add up. But, you know, that was a, a planning flaw as far as I can see. More money than sense, some might say. Yeah. I mean, I also think it's really interesting that he probably exploited some of the local people uh, by paying them so little, £2 a week, which was equal to one day's work. And they were there you know, every day for five weeks. But it also, I mean, that also talks to the fact that they were willing to do that because the prestige that was promised if you managed to take one of these photos, presumably it would make your fortune. If you managed to actually get a legitimate looking photograph of the Loch Ness Monster, you're going to be set for life. So it was, I guess he's exploiting them, but he's offering them an opportunity that they really believe is possible, therefore. I wonder, only because these are local people. And in my experience, local people are the most adept at buying into and opting out of these types of legends and myths and folklore. It's useful to them when it's useful and it's not useful when it's not. I have a feeling, again, this is just an instinct based on some of these records, that actually the, the local men are entering into it for, yes, money, yes, the possibility of earning £10.50 as an additional boon, which, by the way, nobody earns. Nobody gets the £10.50 because it has to be a successful photo. That was the criteria. So I think, you know, maybe these are local men who are up for a bit of a punt and they might be able to get 10 quid by getting a decent photo. They're like, well, I know at this time the local otters come out or whatever. I, I'm talking about sea life now or pond life or lock life. Like I know what I'm talking about. I don't even know if there's otters there, but you know what I mean? It, it, I, you know, they may have used their local knowledge to capture some of these things and try and fob it off as a, uh, as an image. But later, well, same year, but a few months later, 
there does emerge something which I think lasts until this day as the most convincing, shall we say, and the most certainly iconic photo of the Loch Ness Monster, supposedly of the Loch Ness Monster, again, taken in 1934. And it's known as the surgeon's photo. And we have all seen this photo. It is the photo where it seems that there is that long, thin neck with the small head, as described by some of the people who are seeing this monster in 1933, emerging from the waters. And it very much looks like there is something coming out of the water. Um, the water is rippling all around it. And this was on the front page of the Daily Mail. And I think it it, it was so arresting and has captured our imaginations, it has lasted to this day. This is a real explosion at this moment, isn't it? This brings huge amounts of tourism, huge global attention. It's called The Surgeon's Photo because the taker, Robert Kenneth Wilson, is a surgeon, is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So again, we have the stamp, the seal in terms of social status, we have, you know, he's seen as a legitimate witness. He's someone to be trusted and someone who would recognise anatomy and be able to identify something accurately, I guess, as well. Yeah. What's incredible is the power it's had to endure. I mean, if you say to me, proof or evidence of the Loch Ness Monster, it is the first thing that comes in to my mind. Um, I'm not saying I necessarily count it as definitive proof or evidence, I don't, but it certainly is the first piece, the first image that pops into my mind. Um, So go and have a look at that. If you're not 100% familiar with what we're talking about, you will recognise it as soon as you as you see it. Mm, It's really iconic. And something that always strikes me about this image, and about some of the accounts actually, is that the monster starts off as being this dragon, it's whale-sized, it's colossal. And then later on, it's compared to a seal. And when we see the photograph, supposedly of it, I mean, it could be a duck. Yeah. It's tiny. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Or it could be a person's arm coming out of the water. It could be a multitude of things. But this was the thing because, A, it's very clearly coming out of the water. And again, it's that encroaching thing emerging from the depths. That's quite captivating. And it also matches some of the descriptions that have gone before. And I think that's key because it's it's linking up the mythology to the visual proof, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think there are lots of theories that abound about how this photograph was made and the truth behind it. And I think just because it's a photograph does not mean it's a reliable account Mm. of an event or of a sighting of something. And it's so fascinating. But let's get back to monsters. What is it about monsters that keep people coming back? Even today, people go to Loch Ness hoping to see the Loch Ness monster. There are people who believe it's real. There are people still looking for it. Why? Why? It's a good question. I mean, the etymology of the word monster etymology, here we go. Here's the, the PhDs coming into use. Yeah, this is the start of any academic paper. We have the, the definition of the yeah. word. Give it to me. <laughs> From Latin, it's monstrare, meaning to demonstrate or monere, to warn. I think that's really interesting, right? Like to demonstrate or to warn. That's what a monster is supposed to do. And that ties into what we were discussing earlier about this huge uh, increase in sightings in the 1930s at a moment when Europe Mm. is on tenterhooks, when there's huge social tension, political tension. There's a feeling of uneasiness growing in Britain. Everyone here is watching what's happening in Germany with increasing anxiety. The Loch Ness Monster to me feels like a harbinger of, of doom, essentially. It is, it does appear to be a warning. It's coming out of the water to shine a light, I guess, to point towards the danger that is fast approaching. 
monsters become a social tool, don't they? In that way, they are fulfilling a function that kind of embodies the cultural or psychological characteristics that societies maybe find it hard to articulate or acknowledge. It becomes the shadow over one's shoulder slightly. Mm, I think that's true. And I think as well, the relationship that the Loch Ness Monster has to Christianity in particular, and that it's used as a visual and symbolic opposition to good Christian morals. And there's something so ancient and deep about the fear of the water that these locks are incredibly deep. They're incredibly wide, incredibly long. They're huge bodies of water that are incredibly dangerous if you don't know what you're doing. And again, this idea of monsters as a warning, as a, you know, a literal signpost to say, do not go here, you know, here there be monsters. It's it's a sort of classic trope. And yet the irony is, and you're absolutely right, do not go here, but actually do come here and stay in our boarding house and go to our cafes and get some sandwiches. And there's some Nessie uh, teddies over there. And you want to have this T-shirt that says, I saw the Loch Ness Monster. It brings tourism to the area. It has given a whole industry to this area in the Highlands, which is incredible. Yeah, absolutely. It is an industry. And, you know, in 2014, there were businesses in the Highlands that were actually being offered free advice on how they could cash in on the Loch Ness Monster and, you know, other kind of monstrous myths. And if you walk even in Edinburgh, you know, in the safety of lowland Edinburgh away from the Highlands, if you go up Royal Mile, you'll see endless Loch Ness Monster uh, merchandise. So this is absolutely something that people continue to make money out of in all sorts of ways. Yeah, that actual course that you're talking about was called Monster Marketing. I mean, Amazing. it says <laughs> it says exactly what we're talking about right there. It's it's you need to grab onto this. It's going to help your business, and therefore we need to not so much perpetuate the myth, but make sure that the myth lives on. I guess that's perpetuating the myth, but it is lucrative. It, it fulfills a very tangible function in the lives of many people in the Highlands and as you say, in Edinburgh generally, in, in Scottish tourism generally, right up until this day. I think for me, the Loch Ness Monster is very much a symbol. It's very much an idea, a concept that has different usefulness at different points. Do you see any value in it today, Anthony? Beyond the commercial value, I guess. Yeah, yeah. No, well, that's what I was going to say. Beyond those people um, who are benefiting from it financially and commercially, which I think is really worthwhile. Everyone needs to make a living. And I think they're doing that with as much integrity and fun. Because bear in mind, tongue in cheek, as I've said previously, there's nobody better placed to call upon and then push away a myth as the local people and they deserve to be able to harness that monster for their own needs if they need to. Um, any other functions beyond that? I don't think so. I mean, it fits into, that's me personally, it fits into this idea of a conspiracy theory, which we, we spoke about at the start of this episode, right? And I was asking myself as I researched this episode, why? Why is it important for some people that there is a prehistoric or a version of a prehistoric monster at the bottom of this lake in Scotland? And I, and the only reason I could come up with is that if people who believe in this monster are correct, then there are so many other things in the world, the received knowledge that we've been given, that's also incorrect. So if Nessie is down there, prehistoric monsters aren't just with us as fossils or with a collection as a collection of bones. They're with us in flesh and blood and scale and fire breathing and all of these kind of things. So what else have we been misinformed about? And I think that's where the conspiracy comes in. For me, 
There ain't nothing down there but fish and other sea creatures that we know about. But for some people, this is a real thing and, and they find it really necessary to try to destabilize the information that we are being as they see it, being fed and being misled with. Um, and I think that tells us something about our own time too, where conspiracy theories are growing, as far as I can tell, in politically, socially, culturally, uh, historically, and zoologically, as, as it seems here. Absolutely. And I think there is something tantalizing and deliciously so about the Loch Ness Monster, but there is a wider conversation here about conspiracy theories. And I think it'll be interesting to see in the next generation or so how Nessie is used in those conversations if as a, a imagined creature it's something that stays with us or drifts back down to those depths it will be very interesting i think that's all we have time for today so thank you so much for joining us for after dark myths misdeeds and the paranormal you can follow us along wherever you get your podcasts and please do leave us a review until then happy monster hunting Well, thank you for listening to this episode of After Dark. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcast. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can listen to all these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. And as a special gift, now don't say we never give you anything, you can also get your first three months for £1 a month when you use the code AFTERDARK at checkout.